Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Alexander Chi has been variously described as masterful by Roxane Gay, incendiary by the New York Times, and brilliant by the Washington Post. Author of the novels Edinburgh and Queen of the Night, he has now written the essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel shortlisted for the Penn Diamondstein Vogel Prize for the Art of the Essay. In it, he scrutinises the emotional and psychological events of his life and examines the versions of himself, son, subject of sexual abuse, gay man, Korean-American, artist, activist, lover and friend. He also gives advice on keeping the rent low and the employment flexible. He's in conversation with Sasha DeWeel in a session supported by Platinum patrons Peter Mackey and Yuri Opeshko. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, first off, I wanted to say I really enjoyed reading How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. It's a fantastic collection of essays. And uh, I know that it's the product of many, many years of work. You know, these essays have appeared in different guises and different forums, and you've returned back to them. Um, but they were just released last year, and it seems like the essay collection and uh, long-form nonfiction appears to be having a bit of a moment. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Like, why now? When I first brought up the idea of publishing an essay collection with my agent, she said, it's the kind of thing that your publisher will resent, <laughs> but that they will do. Um, and it was 2007. And so I do think that something has changed. I think, you know, there's an interesting paradox of the, of the period where uh, people who people have also, who've talked a lot about how social media has shortened our attention spans, the internet, et cetera, um, I don't think they're also looking at the way in which long-form writing has also mm -hmm. uh, grown enormously. Um, there was a crisis for this kind of writing that I would pinpoint, uh, you know, in my own personal timeline as beginning when Tina Brown took over The New Yorker. And, uh, you know, I was in New York and working in magazines at the time, and suddenly all of these people I knew were using this expression, uh, text-heavy, to talk about magazines, which meant there were too many words in it. <laughs> and this was an expression that she had introduced. So it was like, Tina says it's too text heavy. Um, so of course I was full of disgust for her immediately. <laughs> um, and, and then watched as many magazines began to cut down the size of the stories that they would publish, uh, for a period that lasted about 25 years, about as long as it took to create this collection. Um, and, and only recently have we seen, I think, in the last, I would say, five years, mm -hmm. uh, the realization that there's a hunger for the longer story, mm -hmm. that people want something that might be longer than 5,000 words. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think that's, that's been very interesting. And then with that also, uh, many personal essays, um, which I think kind of came out of blogging mm -hmm. in, a, mm -hmm. in a way, like blogging renewed 
interest in personal writing, which renewed interest in the personal essay. Um, I think, you know, we saw bloggers learn many of the lessons that, uh, that writers had always learned, like don't write about a job that you have. <laughs> um, don't uh, publish complaints about your family while they're alive. Um, uh, don't publish complaints about your lover while you're still with them. Um, you know, uh, there's this weird way in which I think people still have an illusion that when they're online, something is somehow private. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> usually they're alone in their room. <laughs> um, or at least they're conjuring the illusion of being alone while also simultaneously connected to this thing mm-hmm. that will transmit all of their words should they put them down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, throughout all of that, I, I, I saw blogging pretty early on as an opportunity to experiment and play for myself. And some of the essays in that collection uh, started as blog posts. Uh-huh. So you did blog? through. I did. I had, I've had two blogs. Uh, I had a, uh, a type pad blog mm-hmm. called Fictioneer. Um, and then uh, I, I took that down, which was something that you could do. I don't know if people know that they can do that with their blogs. Um, you can take the whole thing offline. It's fantastic. Um, uh, I took it down because I realized that there was a lot of material in it that, uh, that could turn into writing mm-hmm. and that should turn into writing. And with my second blog, Koreanish, which is still online, um, I, with that one, I started to set a rule for myself which was that if the post went over 800 words, mm-hmm. I had to turn it into an essay and, uh, and send it out. Because uh, I was developing a reputation as a literary blogger, but people were also, including my agent, wondering like why all this material was going online for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and so as a result, when I sat down to create the collection, I had about 70 essays. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> um, and that was just the ones that were published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. And how did you go about narrowing that down? Like, how did you find a point of focus for the collection? Because there's not 70 in here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, I was, I, so the collection was born from a moment when I was invited to speak at Columbia University's nonfiction writing program. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I wrote to the person who invited me in, uh, you know, when I accepted, I said, are you sure about this? I don't have a book of nonfiction. And she said, you're one of my favorite essayists. Just send me some of your favorites that I can share with my students. Uh, of course, I know that you don't have a book. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I said, I started to create a list of favorites. And then as I did that, I realized that it looked like a table of contents. And, and then I thought, oh, that looks like a book that should already exist. Mm-hmm. So then I started to uh, think about that, and that led to, so now I have, instead of a blog, I keep what's called a tiny letter, um, which is a newsletter. And I wrote a tiny letter post about it, and my agent got it, and she said, we we should do this. Um, and then she sent me an email uh, with an attachment that her assistant had created 
which was all of the links. My assistant, the assistant had gone to all of the links on the post and collected all of the essays there mm -hmm. and put them into a Word document. And she said, here's your collection, what's missing? Nice. <laughs> and that's when I knew we were in a different era for essay collections. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I started to think about essays that I'd had in my files for, in some cases, decades, unfinished. Mm -hmm. uh, Girl, which is one of the essays in there, for example, uh, was something that I initially wrote in 1990, uh, 1993. Mm -hmm. And I revised it for a few years before just not sending it out yeah. for some reason. Um, I think, and I write about it in the last essay in the collection about this way in which I'm given to abandoning my work and just giving it up at a certain point and mm -hmm. then returning to it many years later. Um, and this way that it comes out of a kind of, uh, a, kind of a, a push against this belief that nothing I say matters. You know? So I'll write it and I'll be like, well... It's nice that you did that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, what happened with Girl was that an editor at Guernica had written to me right after I'd just been going through my files and said, do you have anything uh, that might be about gender? And I remembered that I had this essay that I would look at every so often and think, oh, that's pretty good. And then I would just put it away. Mm -hmm. um, so I sent it to her uh, after giving it a little bit of an edit. I had to type it up because it was on a dot matrix printout. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, they, and she loved it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they published it. It became their most trafficked piece online that year. So I got included in their anthology, their year-end anthology. And then they nominated it for Best American Essays and... <clears throat> and then when I made it into Best American Essays, I thought, wow, you were really dumb to sit on that essay <laughs> for 20 years. You were legitimately stupid to yeah. do that. Um, so I, uh, I used the occasion of an essay collection as a way of going into those files for the things that were still mm -hmm. unfinished um, or at least ignored. And that included um, The Guardians, uh, autobiography of my novel, 1989. Um, it included uh, the final essay on becoming an American writer. Um, uh, the first essay, The Curse, was initially published as a short story in a literary journal mm -hmm. uh, back in the aughts. And as it never went online, I decided to just take the draft and shuck off all of the things that were made up and turn it back into an essay. Um, and I like the result uh, much better, actually, mm -hmm. than the story. So those are some of the things that went into it, and it, mm -hmm. was a, it was a really interesting process, and I, you know, throughout it all, I was thinking through questions of, like, you know, how do you structure an essay collection, um, uh, for example, and you have to, it turns out, account for at least two ways that people will read it. Uh, one is that someone will sit down and they will read one essay and then 
put it down and maybe not come back to the book for many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, may, or maybe a week later or what have you, they'll read in a kind of haphazard sort of way. Yeah. Uh, you know, one person said, oh, I, I read your collection in the order of the titles that I liked. <laughs> Which, who can anticipate that? Um, <laughs> so the other thing that you have to account for is the person who will read the collection all the way through. And... Uh, and both experiences have to have their own dynamic uh, qualities for the book to succeed. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems with someone reading a, a group of essays all the way through is that they will develop the unconscious expectations of a narrative uh, in relationship to it. And uh, while the essays may have been written you know, at various different times, uh, they'll be reading it and they'll think, well, he was just in San Francisco. Why is he uh, in New York now? Or why is he in Maine? Or, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I decided on a chronological order for it. And I think the happy accident, the Felix Culpa of the whole event, is that um, it became a kind of interconnected stories of the self, you know, where... In one section, I pick up a theme, and in another section, the theme continues. Uh, uh, in one section, you see me think, oh, maybe this will happen, and, and then another essay is about how all of that happened. Yeah. Um, and so it's not, uh, it's not an autobiography in, in terms of, like, if I had sat down to write an autobiography, it would be a very different and much longer book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it is kind of a s- sketches towards that mm-hmm. as a result. It's nice that you mentioned the structure there because it really does feel like that's being done intentionally. Like there are points throughout the book, as you mentioned, where something will come up and then you'll use the switch from sort of slight narrativization to nonfiction to be like, and these are the parts that were lies and these are the parts that were truth. <laughs> and here's what actually happened. And it's a really nice sort of throughout. And I wondered if it was organic. So it's nice to hear that, you know, there was intention behind that. I do have a friend, uh, the writer Garnett Cadigan, who mm-hmm. is an absolute wizard uh, as a reader. Mm-hmm. You know, some of your uh, some of your friends in this life, if you haven't encountered this yet, um, uh, have a you know a, a genius for understanding what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so he was the one who helped tinker with the sort of final final order of the essays. Um, and I think. Uh, uh, his his additions to it were significant. Mm-hmm. Um, as you talked about that, there were about three different points that I kind of wanted to follow the <laughs> okay, thread of. Sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting that you mentioned girl as something that originated quite early on and that you discarded and came back to because it feels incredibly contemporary as a piece, um, you know, coming out in 2016. Um, and it is the only one in the collection that, that does touch on sort of the idea of gender um, and yeah, that, that play with gender, you know, pretty much in the rest of it, there's no, there's not so much calling into question like your own gender identity as a, as a cis man. I wondered, is that, was that important to you to include? Is that something that is a bigger thread in your life or is, is it kind of as self-contained as it sits within the collection? It is important. I think, you know, the, the thing that's interesting to me about the contemporary conversation about gender identity is that, uh, used to be that we thought of gender as a way that you are identified to others. Mm-hmm. And I think now we understand it differently as a way that we identify to ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. 
um, a relationship to the self first. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the thinking through it uh, for myself as I approached, like, revising that essay, I could see how mm -hmm. these were questions I had been thinking about in some way or another my whole life, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I've been very moved by the reception the essay had and the ways in which people feel like um, they found something in it that was valuable to them in thinking about it. So it's, yeah, it's, I think, a testimony to the way in which, you know, even though, you know, at the time that I wrote it, the ideas we had about gender were so crude by mm -hmm. comparison, you know, at least, or at least the vocabulary for talking about it. Um, you know, I think about my trans friends from back then and the way in which trans identity was something that uh, was, was just so routinely ignored um, and much less uh, mishandled. Um, and I think that's something I would love to write about also as I think about, like, I've had about three essay ideas this weekend. <laughs> there will probably be another collection. Yay. Oh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that's... Really definitely, I'm thinking about. Yeah, that. it's definitely one that um, spoke to me. You know, even as a cis woman, the the it comes up in the curse as well. Uh, both of them are moments where you found that you were able to take on an identity that was more whole than, say, the sort of more fragmented identity of you know Korean American gay, um, which which was really nice um, because that is something that I think as a woman you also feel when putting on makeup. <laughs> You're like, oh, yes, now I can pass as a regular human in the world and no one will question <laughs> who you are, why you're here, why you look so tired. Um, so it was nice to see that commonality, like even across, you know, sort of gender experiences. I remember watching, I had a cousin who lived with us for a year mm -hmm. when I was in high school while she was starting college. And she would get up at 5 a.m. Uh, every morning before class to begin her ablutions uh. <laughs> um, and she she wasn't like uh she wasn't otherwise leaving in like formal dress you know she'd be leaving the house in like a acid wash uh denim miniskirt and you know but her hair would be perfectly set and her makeup done and uh there was this way in which um uh you know she was one of the first people to admit to me that she would put on makeup before her boyfriend woke up. Um, uh, sort of like, I, and I just thought like, oh my God, it is exhausting to be you. Yeah. But, <laughs> and I thought maybe she was somehow uh, uh, exceptional, but it turns mm -hmm. out lots of women were living like that. Yeah, pretty much. And that, uh, that was a real revelation to me. Mm-hmm. And within both of those, where you were able to take on an, an identity that, you know, felt kind of more coherent, so, you know, passing as a woman or um, as a sort of a mestizo uh, in Mexico as a teenager, was that, how did that feel to be able to take on, you know, a more, yeah, sort of whole identity as it were, as it's presented, even though they're both still, you know, mixed? So the, um, in the, so the first essay's uh, discussion of, of like when I was in Mexico and passed as Mexico Mexican, excuse me, and uh, and then the the drag essay uh, about passing as a woman, I think both of those have in common that they're about misidentifications mm -hmm. in a sense that uh, helped me understand myself. That's how I see the connection right, yeah, there. Yeah. And 
And that also helped me understand uh, those people as mm -hmm. well, uh, my, my Mexican friends and, uh, and my, my women friends, my trans friends. Um, they were points of, uh, I, I, I often say that I think that like the one thing that Asian American identity has in, in common for Asian Americans across the spectrum is the experience of misidentification. Mm -hmm. That's like the only thing that, the only thing that you can really count on is that you have been mistaken for someone else. Someone <laughs> has been somewhere in public and called you Chinese when you're not Chinese or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, a sort of... Um, uh, nothing else will will hold, mm -hmm. I think, and so that that became uh, that became more of I think of the theme. It's like those misidentifications. Yeah, that's interesting. That's yeah, that's uh, I think I read it more as a yeah being able to take on an identity and kind of set aside something for a moment that can be quite tiring to carry. Yeah, um, I think you know in the in the first essay and in the second, I think what I learned was. But the thing that I found tiring to carry was mm -hmm. actually the thing uh, that I needed, you know, that, um, that I was being asked in a sense to be more, to be less complicated. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was just what I was and I needed that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go back now and talk a little bit about, um, about, you know, the ideas of truth and fiction because, you know, what, what we have kind of, and it's interesting actually the publishing context of these because for you, Edinburgh came out in 2001 and then you wrote a second novel and worked on an essay collection and that came out in 2018. But for, I don't know if it's the same here in New Zealand, but for UK readers, these came out at the same time. Yep. So they feel, they just feel, I mean, they are very much two parts of one whole to me anyway, but I don't know if that's because of the publishing context or not. And so... I think, you know, the, the books, each book does something the other can't. Mm -hmm. Is how I would, is how I think of it. Um, the novel uh, was an attempt on my part to, uh, to do a number of things. One was to write about the anger that I felt uh, uh, that I didn't see anywhere in the literature that I was reading about the aftermath of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. um, uh, nothing seemed angry enough to me. Um, and nothing seemed to reflect the, the cost of, of carrying that anger yeah. uh, around. And then there was also, um, you know, I, as I say in the collection, um, when I went to look for uh, anything that was written by Korean Americans, much less a, a gay Korean American, there was I couldn't was so difficult to find anything, mm -hmm. uh, and that is something that I am thinking about a lot now, um, even uh, even now, especially the next week. Uh, I've written an introduction to a new edition of Young Hill Kang's East Goes West, which is the first Korean American novel uh, by a Korean American about a Korean American experience. And it was published in uh, in the early 30s, and uh, it was a seminal work of Asian American writing and Asian American fiction. Um, and uh, it's interesting to me that he had many of the experiences I did, which is to say, um, you know, people looked at his novel as a straight-up autobiography. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, were dealing with it as that and not dealing with what he was trying to write about. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, so 
But I didn't find Young Hill Kang until like 2008, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, you'd been writing without that I'd context. Been, exactly. Yeah. Um, and certainly there were other writers who, you know, when they, I think the, the first one I remember specifically um, was Chang Rae Lee, mm-hmm. uh, who published in the, his, his first novel, I think, in the mid-90s. And um, I, I wanted to set a flag in the culture of being, you know, a Korean-American gay man who was writing about those experiences. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the other task I set for myself mm-hmm. with the book. And in terms of the reception of the novel, you mentioned there um, that the books are often taken as, you know, straight autobiography and people aren't willing to talk about the, the issues within. Be- Do you think that that's specific to being sort of a minority identity within American culture? But because there's f- so few? I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, so I will say reviewers, mm-hmm. uh, when the novel first came out, were uh, incredibly... Uh, Complimentary, mm-hmm. shall we say? Um, the the novel was uh, something that that got a terrific amount of attention for a debut novel, and it definitely established my career um, in the U.S. And uh, the but the the thing that became strange was the press around it, and then also the the questions that I would get at readings, and you know I think the I remember the first time someone asked me if anything in the book was autobiographical or what mm-hmm. what specifically in the book was autobiographical and I I said I said would it change how you believed it would you believe it more mm-hmm. if you knew uh and you know I I just I didn't understand why that question existed you know um and I do feel like it is a way for uh, an interviewer to kind of dodge um, what the book is about if they don't want to talk about what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it becomes this very easy question to ask, especially if the interviewer hasn't read the book, <laughs> um, which is certainly not your situation. <laughs> she, uh, she showed me the... Um, the this was... Uh, the, all the pages she had dog-eared, um, which we I, can't talk about it all. I'm uh, really sorry. You're just gonna have to go and read it. <laughs> I was very flattered. Um, uh, so the, you know the, that's and that's the sort of also where the title of the collection comes from. Mm-hmm. Is a, it's a bit of a joke about that question. Yeah. So uh, with Edinburgh, let's not let's not shy away from what yes, the book is about. Absolutely. You just brought it up. Um, so the book is, you know, kind of a going over and a reworking of the after effects of sexual trauma on somebody's life. And parts of it are autobiographical, but parts of it obviously are not. Um, and I wondered, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about the novel, but also how you came to decide that a novel was how you wanted to approach those topics at that time. I, I think the... Um The thing that I discovered in my writing career uh, as, as a young writer who was just starting out was that um, you, can, you can choose what you're going to write about less than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is to say that in the end you write about what you are driven to write about, what you feel an urgency about. Yeah. Um, and I think the, uh, the way in which the, the sort of, uh, you know, certainly these, I think what I was trying to show was, you know, people would say to me like, you know, at the time that the, the abuse happened, they'd be like, oh, how does, how does something like this happen? Um, and I, I remember thinking like, we, don't we know how it happens? Don't we understand it? Even though I was just still starting to uh, filter these impressions myself, you know, I remember the way in which the kids who were abused, for example, were treated uh, much the same as the abuser. They were sort of shunned socially and mocked. Uh, there was very little sympathy for them. Um, uh, I had, you know, I've, I've just published an essay about how I hid my own, uh, like why I hid my own relationship to what happened, um, which is to say I did not, when I testified against the abuser, I testified as a witness to other people's abuse and not, uh, and not as someone who had been abused. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the way in which that creates these strange kind of grooves in your mind, that was the kind of thing I was trying to describe. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way in which you start to pretend to be something uh, someone who didn't even experience what happened, mm -hmm. how that performance continues and soon takes over your whole life. Um, and in the meantime, the person that you are who has suffered uh, this uh, is inside of that and uh, is in torment. Yeah. You know? um, <clears throat> so that's what I first set out to try to describe in the novel was how that... Uh, how that initial silence around uh, what happens to you mm -hmm. becomes suffocating and what happens to someone as a result. But I also wanted to write about, uh, to write about it in such a way that it, it gave people room to sort of look all the way around mm -hmm. uh, the, the issues that I was bringing up, some of which had to do with, uh, you know, there's a certain pernicious belief that, uh, that being sexually abused as a child t makes you gay, you know, mm -hmm. um, for example. And my, my gay identity as a young person was something that I was aware of very early, and uh, it was something that my abuser manipulated uh, as a way to, you know, s sort of giving me the idea that he was creating this space for me to exist in as a young mm -hmm. uh, queer person. Um, at a time when there was no space like that, yeah. you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, what that does is that's him creating a world in which I can be, quote unquote, myself, mm -hmm. even though it's something that's very much created by him. Yeah, and also another way to guarantee sort of control and silence, right? Because if that's something you're not capable of articulating yes. yet, then you're not going to talk about the bigger picture of what's happening. Right. And that's how the, that's part of how the complicity mm -hmm. is created. You know, as a child, you don't, uh, you don't know that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. You experience it as like a gift, you know? Yeah. Um, and, 
Uh, you have this person who's telling you how talented you are, how smart you are, how he thinks that children should be able to make decisions just like adults. Mm-hmm. You know, as a child, you're like, yes, I also believe that. Um, you know, there's, it's all very, like, mm-hmm. it's all very enticing, you yeah. know. And then comes the choice that's not really a choice. That's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, built into uh, the way in which you have been groomed for that particular moment. Mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, complicity is something that that kind of hangs through the novel um, in a really serious way. The character, Fee, it, it's just kind of, it follows him through the book uh, that he feels because there's a moment where he sort of witnessed some abuse and is adjacent to, to some things. Um, but then several years later, um, another person who is brought in to witness that immediately speaks out. And I think there's a real sort of tension between mm. what happened there and his own choice to not report it. And I guess maybe that's tied up with the gay identity aspect of it, that that other um, character, whose name now escapes me, um, his last name was Morin. (laughs) (laughs) I think his name is Zach in the book, yeah. Um, I'm just suddenly remembering this, even though I wrote this like (laughs) 20 years ago. Do you forget (laughs) things from your books? Um, I do, yeah. Yeah. Uh, You'll be like, I love that character, and you'll be like, who? I, I remember it pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think that um, uh, The Queen of the Night certainly mm-hmm. is a novel where I'll open it up and I'll think, who wrote this? <laughs> um, even though I spent so much more time on it than okay. Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a sort of... Uh, there's a way in which when you're writing the book, it's, you're writing something that is too big for your mind to contain it all at once. Mm-hmm. And so you lay it out on these pages as you think through it, and that's where, that's where you can keep it uh, uh, all in one place, you know. And so when you're done writing the book, there's no way for you to retain it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it just kind of, like, falls out the back. And you can end <laughs> up, as a result, on tour for a book <laughs> and getting asked questions about it by people who've just read uh-huh. it. And you're thinking like, yes, that's very clever, isn't it? I definitely did that. That makes me feel better Um. because that's how I remember (laughs) books as a reader. Um, I get like a strong sense of them. It's kind of like how you remember dreams where you're like, you were there and I knew it was you, but you were maybe a shark, but I knew it was you. you (laughs) There's no other details, but you just know that one kind of point, the deeper truths of the thing, the dream or the novel. And then, you know, I find... Uh, that there are strange things that come back to me at different times, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, and it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so Edinburgh definitely felt because I read them in very quick succession, like a kind of an you know an excavation of that sort of what is fiction, what is nonfiction, the things that affected yourself, and it, it felt like a very cathartic book, like you know something where you could work through and process a trauma and then perhaps put it aside. But then of course in how to write an autobiographical novel, you return back to those topics and you uncover them and you reveal the fiction that had been there um, and, and reveal truths even to yourself again. I wondered, what, what was it like to come back to those essays, especially as they were unfinished pieces that you were working on at the same time as Edinburgh and kind of return back to, to then actually discover, you know, quite large pieces of information that you hadn't realized you didn't put into Edinburgh but are relevant to it? That was a very long question. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the um, 
the closest thing I can think of as a, as a it was a lot like an archaeology of the South, mm-hmm. you know, or or maybe like being a a, a private detective mm-hmm. responsible for investigating your own your own intentions. <laughs> um, uh, I treated myself like a subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and treated who I was at the time like a subject also. I went into my journals. I went into my old emails. I interviewed people who knew me at the time. I reread books that I had been reading at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cat's Eye in particular and, uh, and by Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Uh, that was a, a big influence on this book. And, uh, and then also Aristotle's The Poetics, mm-hmm. uh, tracking down even the specific translation that I had read. Um, but also there was a, a way in which I was trying to uh, trying to think through some of the more subtle uh, aspects that weren't, weren't maybe even things I was aware of for a very long time. So, you know, the, the essay in there that's called uh, The Guardians was mm-hmm. something that, and as well as the autobiography of my novel, they, were, they had become like one massive, unwieldy essay that was mm-hmm. impossible to resolve. Yeah. But it had started out as like a 2,000-word essay that I was going to write and publish around the time that the novel appeared, Mm -hmm. which is this kind of thing that novelists do where they they write a few essays that accompany the publication of your book. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and at the time that I was writing it in around 2002, it became clear to me that there was simply no way that I was going to get through everything that wanted to emerge Mm -hmm related to that in, in 2,000 words, much less in time for that. So it became this, this experience that I would return to again and again as I uh, tried to process these things. Uh, one thing that was interesting to me was to realize that the writing of the novel was in some way a, a, a way for me to prepare my life to then go through the recuperative uh, experience that I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I had not gone through before I wrote the novel. Yeah, there's a really nice piece. I think it's probably in the essays where you mention that going back over the subjects was like repeating the thing again and again until you were able to say it out loud, which I quite liked. Yes. Mm. And I think there was also uh, uh, an unconscious drive to make a world that was safe for me to then experience the memories that I needed mm-hmm. to to go through. Um yeah. I realize that we've been talking so much that we haven't heard anything from you in terms of a reading. Uh, Would you like to read a little bit? Sure. Would you like to borrow my heavily dog-eared book? Um, I'll read read a little bit from both. Okay. Uh, I'll read from the the prologue to this novel Mm -hmm. first. After he dies, missing Peter for me is like swimming in the cold spot of the lake. Everyone else laughing in the warm water under some too close summer sun. This is the answer to the question no one asks me. The time that I think will be the last time I see Peter isn't as it happens. There'd be one more to come. My grandfather lost his six older sisters to the Japanese during World War II, gone and never heard from again. 
Comfort women was what the Japanese called those they stole for their soldiers. They were girls, though. My grandfather tells me the first stories I hear about what a great animal the fox is when I am a child. Foxes rescuing children in danger, foxes with magic rings, Korean name, Yowu. Years later, when I read in college about how the fox is a demon in Japan, I think of him. I ask him about it when I come home and see him next. Anything kill Japanese, my friend, he says. Fox, bomb, Chinese, anything, my friend. He's a gaunt now, hollowed, a silver-haired hat rack, beautiful in the way of anything missing something else. He has a picture of his mother and sisters on his wall, beautiful women almost identical to each other in the manner of old families. Of his sisters, my grandfather has one left, born after the others have been stolen. He'll die still missing those sisters who used to run along the beach, tossing him back and forth between them. After his sisters were taken away, the Japanese occupying force sent my grandfather to imperial schools. My first language is Japanese, he tells me. English far away, but okay. Be like a fox, he says. Okay. Sometimes right after he told me, I would look at him and wonder what it felt like to have the print of your enemy all the way inside you, right into the way you shaped your thoughts. But I know now. The fox demon often takes the shape of a beautiful girl. You fall in love with her and she leaves and you live for 30 days more afterward and die of missing her. She can breathe a fireball, a will-o'-the-wisp of electric air. When she marries another fox, the sun shines and rain falls at the same time for one day. It's considered good luck, days like this for the fox trouble ends for that day. Fox demons can change their shapes at will, assuming the forms of lost loves long dead. There are stories of how noblemen and their wives in ancient Japan had picnics and watched the foxes change shape on the hillside, transforming from armies to castles and back again in ritual battles. When possessed by a fox demon, you can fly and walk through walls. You can hear the demon speak through you in a second voice. The Lady Tamamo was a fox who fell in love with a man and took the shape of a woman in order to marry him. Her hair remained red and so she was feared, for at that time in Korea, the only people with red hair were said to be demons. She was very beautiful in the way of fox demons, and her husband loved her, and she loved him. She bore her husband children, all sons. After some trouble in their village for which she was blamed, they left and moved to a tiny island between Korea and Japan where they settled and were accepted by the fishermen there, who had seen many things and were not afraid of her. I'll be safe here, she told her husband. And she was. Rumored to be from Mongolia, she told people when they asked her where her clan was from, that it was a place where the sky bent the earth. When her husband died and his family came to burn his body, she stood by him and stoked the fire under him. Her husband's family watched her, afraid. But she turned back into a fox now that her husband was dead and kill them all, make their skulls into helmets and hunt the fishermen. She smiled at them, pressed her hand to her husband's cold face and stepped up under the fire, which then rose until the family could not see them. The fox can breathe a fireball if she likes, and so she did, and it burned husband and wife both to ashes. Her children, now without their mother, never learned to be foxes, and so her descendants have lived as ordinary men and women since. The village sometimes wondered why Lady Tamamo fled into the fire, 
when fox demons can live to be hundreds of years old. Some felt they had been wrong and that perhaps she hadn't been a demon at all. The children seen sometimes selling their fish in the markets were so beautiful and kind to everyone. You couldn't see the red in their hair unless the sun shone right on it, and then you'd see it, red threads among the black. My father tells me the story of her when I find a red hair on his head, growing from his left temple. This is all that remains of her, my father tells me when he tells me the story, and he pulls the red hair out of his head and hands it to me. When I show the red hair to my blonde mother, she laughs. He always pulls that hair out, she says. I had a red-haired great-grandfather, you know. My hair is brown, but in my beard the red threads grow. I shave them. My name is Ephias G. Ephias was the name of a schoolteacher in Scotland five generations back on my mother's side. G is the name every man in my father's family has been called by since that first day we fished the sea between Korea and Japan 500 years ago. Ephias became Fee in the mouth of my friend Peter. Fee became Fiji in college. But Fee is the name that stuck because Peter gave it to me. This is a fox story of how a fox can be a boy. And so it is also the story of a fire. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.